Hi, I'm Trenton Stander. Hi, I'm Tim Brown. And, and this is the Open Heart Cast. Mr. Alex Norton from Valhalla Ironworks. How are you doing, brother? How's it, Buit? <laughs> but you still don't say it right. Almost, <laughs> almost, almost, very close. Been, oh uh, man, pra- trying to practice my Afrikaans, ready for coming onto this show. Af- 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 Afrikaans, I'm gonna rip you, brother. I'm gonna rip you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Afrikaans, but man, this who don't this who say. I can't speak very good Afrikaans, as it's evidence already. But um, <laughs> yeah, anyway. It's uh, it's good to have you on the podcast, brother. We we tried to do this on Saturday, but the uh, my computer was giving us some trouble, and um, yeah, so I'm glad to got we we got to do it today. It's great. Yeah, good to be here. Right. So um, tell us, Alex, a, la- a little bit about your sort of let let's start with the journey of how you got into the sort of the knife making industry. What what's your background? How how did that all work out? Oh man, my background's been everything. Um, it's it's comical the list of things that I've careers that I've had. But um, one thing I've always been really interested in is um, survivalism and self sufficiency. Um, and part of that journey was learning how to do everything to provide for myself. And um, I realised that you know sometimes you need to be able to make your own tools. And so I started reading about blacksmithing, uh, put together. A, a really, really dodgy forge and um, got an anvil and uh, started hammering steel and absolutely fell head over heels in love with it and did it for years before I even made a knife at all. Um, But once I started making knives, I started really getting a love for knife making. And um, it's a a field that's – there's certain fields hidden throughout the world that no matter how good you get at them, you can always get better. I mean, the vast yeah. vast majority of fields, you can get to a point where you're just as good as you can possibly be, and that's it. But um, yeah. there are these really great little fields um, that bypass that completely, and I found knife making to be one. And um, mm-hmm. I particularly fell in love with folding knives. I, I love the artistry and the me- mechanics of folding knives. And uh, that's just kind of where I'm at in my journey at the moment. That's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. And I think I can relate to you uh, in some sense that um, before the knife making for me as well, it was it was very much the survival of bushcraft side of things predominantly. Learning self-sufficiency and, and learning how to make certain even rudimentary tools that make camp life easier and things like that. Mm. And um and that's a it's a beautiful start that I'm 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 very grateful to have a fellow knife maker <laughs> beginning. I'm sure there's many more. I'm sure there's many more, but uh, we've been good friends since the uh dagger challenge, the forty eight hour dagger challenge. From a couple that of years was, ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was uh whew, man, I've never been so challenged in my entire life. I live for those was... things, man. I get more excited about the forty eight hour <laughs> dagger challenge than I do about Christmas. I love it. <laughs> It's this masochistic oh, 48 dude. hours of just pleasurable oh. pain, and it's just great. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I've only done one, and the first one, I've come a long way since then. I was sad to miss you on the then. last one that, that happened. Yeah, 
yeah man i was just there was so much going on and i just i just didn't feel like i could do it justice at that point setting kitchens and, on fire uh, and all sorts of things going on all life. sorts of things <laughs> going on man there was it, it was a crazy time a house fire <laughs> got caught in a house fire i'm like jeepers creepers what else could go wrong my phone broke during the house fire trying to get a torch on yeah i, I think i think that's done more damage to my lungs than like smoking as much mm. as i smoke goodness me um but yeah it's been it was just a crazy time but i definitely want to get back into the the dagger challenge that's an awesome you know what it is though. physical I mean, it's, it's challenge it's, that that you get to do it's this it's this insane moment that is this something you don't get often in life especially nowadays it's, when we come from a a simpler time and nowadays you don't get simple anymore life is complicated and busy and noisy and there's people pulling at you all different ways there's different jobs to do there's things you're supposed to keep up with but for that 48 hours you have an excuse and a reason to forget everything and just mm. live in that moment that zen mm. you get to choose how much of that 48 hours you're going to work and how much you're going to sleep and how much you're going to eat mm. and it's it's all just uh, it's the perfect excuse to be able to focus on the one thing that brings us all together in this craft and it's a beautiful yeah. moment that you don't you could have any time but it's hard to justify for yourself to do that with all those mm. other things and when you get somebody as powerful socially commanding as powerful as neil's saying no you've got permission we're doing this people all over the yeah. world were doing this you've kind of it, yes it lets you just let go and focus and it's it's a beautiful thing well it's compelling it's compelling to experienced knife makers it's compelling to new knife makers because you don't have to make a spectacular dagger you have to meet the requirements that's it and no matter where you are in the uh in the field no matter how much experience you've got no matter how much you don't have you can still do this to, to some level yeah i mean when i did my my first 48 hour dagger build as i spoke to Niels about it and i said to him look i don't have a forge i can't heat treat this at that point i was doing all of my stuff at uh, jack's place now i have a forge i have an anvil i have all that stuff but at the time i didn't have all that stuff and uh i said to him what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna take a file right <laughs> Yep. And I'm going to use this thing. It's already hardened. That's what I can do. And he said, brother, do it. Yeah. Just get it done. That's it. And I was like, okay, there we go. That's that's what I'm doing. And I and I tempered it. It's not perfect. It looks like a, a, a shitty letter opener. Um okay. I think I've got but it. Is it a dagger? In the junk Does it work? It it looks like one. Looks like one. Um the the, the handle even rattles. Uh, it's got a little <laughs> rattler. So if you were trying to sneak up on somebody in that and you got the jitters, you'd yeah, you know, you'd give it away for sure. But that's the thing. I mean, it it's it's impossible to make it a, an ornate dagger in forty eight hours. But a good knife maker, any knife maker worth the salt, does seven impossible yes. things before they even light up their first cigarette in the morning yeah 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 and um there's something to be said about that there's something to be said about doing difficult things on a regular basis it gives you a type of self-confidence about yourself you know it, it gives you it gives you a sort of reason to think that you're more valuable because you can achieve difficult things yeah yeah and it's and it's not an to inflate time. oneself yeah it's not to inflate oneself it's just to 
to give yourself a sense of worth that uh, that I find I struggle with from time to time. You well, know? it's a common um, theme in the knife making community. A lot of us suffer with anxiety issues or, or self doubt issues, and this is uh, almost like a power grab making knives. It's a it's a powerful thing to be able to do, um, but. Yeah doing something like the 48 hour challenge and the surprising yourself. And this is why it's so important to just stick through and don't, don't give up. Even if you've only got an hour left, you just keep fighting because succeeding and pulling off any type of dagger by the end of that builds a foundation upon which you can just ride out the rest of the year. Yeah. 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 And it also shows you, where your strengths are at and where your weaknesses are at. Oh yeah. Like if you're good at if you if you're good at a particular aspect of knife making, you're good at that thing. You're not good at all of them. Like and it, and it shows you your 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 spaces in which to improve. Uh, even if you fail. Even you know, uh, it's, it just shows you where you need to improve and what you need to do better and what you need to spend more time on. Even little things like um, shop layout. And it's not until you're working at that pace that you'll suddenly realize, you know what? I need to rearrange this this shithole. Yeah. Can I say that yeah. on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. We swear on here all the time. Oh, good. Um, but uh, that's that's the thing, dude. I, I was always wondering to myself, I would watch Niels over the years. And I've known him for, for a fair amount of time. And I'm looking at this dude. I'm like, this motherfucker is just changing shit all the time. He's rearranging his workshop all the time. And and I couldn't understand it until I got my own working space. I rearranged this shop countless times. Mm. And each time I thought I had figured it out. I've got, it's working better. And then each time you work in it for a little period of time, you're like, there's got to be a better way to do this. Oh, yeah. And Niels is just optimizing all the time. He's calculating. How does this fucking work with this? How does, how does the system run? Mm -hmm. What's what, what keeps this well-oiled machine moving? How do we optimize this? And it's, it's crazy to see. I learned a hell of a lot from that guy. I'm sure many people think we all have. Yeah. Um, wow. I was talking to um, Grace Horn on the Forgecast a couple of weeks ago, uh, and she yeah. she summed him up perfectly. She said, "Niels is my spirit animal." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! But actually, um, the first first forty eight hour dagger challenge was the first time I'd ever made a dagger, and I worked my yeah. butt off to make what is a fairly simple dagger, a Fairbairn Sykes dagger, um, simple, elegant, clean. And I thought I should be able to do this. Mm. I worked right up to the hilt to get that thing done. And then because of the time difference, I got to sit down and watch you guys all do it. And I watched Niels do in the last 20 minutes more work than I had done in the entire 48 hours. And I realized I'm doing this. I'm doing this wrong. And it, Uh, but watching all getting those little windows into your workshop, into Jack's workshop, into Grant's workshop, into Tim's workshop, into all of these different people. Um, yeah, you start picking up just little piece from here and a piece from there and a piece from there, and you start. Yes. Uh, it, uh, Neil Gaiman actually says it best: before you sound like yourself, you've got to sound like a hell of a lot of other people. Sure, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's well put. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that's a big aha moment when somebody says something and they just nailed it. You're like, ah, mm-hmm. okay, well done. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> well done. That was it's brilliant. I love those aha moments. 
Um, but yeah, that's the thing that you take away little bits of information and sometimes you forget it and then you revisit that guy's workshop and you're like, oh fuck yes, I meant to do this last time and I still haven't got to it. You yeah. know, like there's this little uh, scribing thing for um, for scribing the, the center line of your cutting edge yes. that Grant's got in his workshop yeah. and it's put together simple. It's a simple setup, and but but it's you know when something's beautiful in its effectiveness and simplicity at the same time. Yeah, you just look at it and you're like, oh my god, I can make that and that'll make my life so much easier, right? Mm. <laughs> like <laughs> taking drills roughly the same size, yeah. sliding it along granite, and oh. Jeepers, dude. I cut my hand open on a sharp drill once I'm trying to do that. <laughs> it was not fun. It's not um, fun. I know what you mean. Um, I actually had, um, I was complaining about my platen heating up um, and I uh, got a message out of the blue from Jack Connan. Bless that oh, yeah, man's yeah. heart. He's, a, he's a gem. Yeah. Um, he's and he, a gem. he sent, sent me this series of videos explaining how his wet grinding system works. And I'm like, yeah. I, that's brilliant. That's genuine genius. Yeah. I've got to build that. And I've been meaning to build yeah. it. I've even got the parts lying there. And it's been there about 18 yeah. months now. I still haven't <laughs> done it. <laughs> I, um, I, when I started my my uh, apprenticeship program with Jack Conan, dude, that guy is so incredible. Like I, I, I phoned him and uh, I found out that he lived pretty near me. And this is the first time I spoke to him was I, I've, he he actually phoned me. I was WhatsApping him and he actually phoned me. And he said, like, what what's up? Like, what's your interest and what, what, what? I had just come back from the Western Cape doing bushcraft and anti-poaching and stuff. And and then I started an apprenticeship program with him. I said to him, Hey, you know, if if you wouldn't mind teaching me, I'll work for you for free. Like, so that I can just learn how to do this. Mm. And he has taught me so much and literally got my level from here today mm. like in in short periods of time just spending time with somebody who knows how to do it he's a wealth and, of knowledge short, he he really is he really is um and uh i tell him that way too often you know <laughs> he, he probably still doesn't believe it though but he the thing is he doesn't realize i don't think the guy like if i was at that point i'd be like i'm, I'm good like I've achieved what I thought I could achieve, but he's, he's obviously, he knows he's good, but he wants to be better. That's what he keeps telling me. He's like, I want to be at this guy's level. I want to be at that guy's level. He's like talking about Steve Schwarzer and men like that. And, and I'm just like, yeah, okay, for sure. But come on, dude, like you're not far behind, you know, really. If you look at it in He's, the grand um, scheme of things, he has a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, I mean, especially in cutthroat razors, I mean, he makes some of the best in the world easy. Yeah. Uh, um, another person that uh, I've gotten a lot from is uh, Stuart Anthony Smith, brilliant knife oh, yes. maker. And oh, um, yes. the person responsible for releasing Neils onto the world. So we, we can't can't necessarily forgive him for that. But uh, he's, <laughs> he's nevertheless a great guy. And uh, just, he, just he as is. generous with his knowledge as, as uh, Jack is. Oh, for sure, for sure. He's he's uh, he's 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 one of those guys who's like really really good, and he gives you the time of day, like Niels, like Jack, and he's he's willing to share that with you. Um, and he was telling me the other day that he's, I think he wrote a, a fantasy novel, Stuart. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. 
and he's and he's written a, another book earlier, but it's still like in in the editing program. I'm not sure how shush shush this is, but he told he didn't say not to say it. But uh, yeah, it's he's a very well read guy. I wouldn't be surprised. He he seems to be. I haven't spent a lot of one on one time with him. I've spoken to him a little bit here and there, but Nielsen's generally talking to the guy, you know, yeah. and then they get into they get into it, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I got to speak to him at Jack's place. He came to do some uh, salt bluing at, at Jack's place on some parts for a Bowie, I think it was. Uh, and uh, and I got to spend a bit of time talking to him. And he's really very knowledgeable as well. Very knowledgeable. Actually, my um, one of my all-time favorite folding knife makers and biggest influences um, in my own mm. work is actually a South African as well. Um, Charles Pinar, if you're familiar with him. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, incredible work, just top-notch. And he's he's been actually very, very lovely and helpful for me as well, um, uh, yeah. very, very open and sharing with skills and knowledge and um, has been very helpful in my own work. It's just there's a lot of That's great amazing. talent in South Africa. There is, man. There's, I mean, Tian Berger is one of them. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and uh, another one is uh, Henning Wilkinson, of course. Yep. Um, there's, there's so many to mention. It just goes on and on and on. Bertie Reitveld. Um, Bertie Reitveld. Um, another one is uh, Henny Duplessis. Right. Beautiful, beautiful folders as well. Um, in my opinion, some, some people... I've spoken to them about it, and but everybody else that I've spoken to in the knife industry has spoken very well of his work, and uh, and and he's just a nice guy. He's a great guy. Yeah, he's really a nice guy, and he's and he's so humble and down to earth, and that's that's what you want. I don't know. That's what that's (laughs) that's that's what draws me to people, like you know, because because I feel that I'm that way. You know, I'm that I'm with that. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm open with people. You know, and um, and I like it when people do the same. It just takes down a lot of bullshit. You know, it just takes a lot of stuff out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a topic just to steer the, the, the conversation a little bit ever so much because there's something I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about is your uh, your, your start in bushcraft. Mm. And like, how did you get into that? Oh, well, I'm a country boy, so it's sort of just – is part of growing up really it's uh yeah you know we, we'd go out uh my granddad and i would go poaching which you know <laughs> it was it was the you know the 90s <laughs> you could do anything in the early <laughs> 90s um but yeah we'd uh, that sort of thing sneaking off and and building mm. fish traps and um yeah i got my first pocket knife given to me by my uncle when i was eight and um showed me yeah. how to, showed me how to use it showed me how to respect it as well uh mum wasn't too mm. happy about being given a knife but um it was just part of growing up really spending time climbing trees and digging through bushes and and finding interesting bugs and that and it just led to a love of the outdoors and i've always loved being outdoors and I have been lucky enough to live in some of the the best bushwalking country in the world, um, where it's it's the sort of place where everyone sort of thinks of Australia as being filled with animals that want to kill you. Um, but it's it's not the animals that you got to worry about. Nature itself tries to kill you here. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty rough. It's a tough place. <laughs> uh, it's a tough place. It's very much like Africa in that sense. Everything's out to get you. But Tasmania, yeah. in particular. Um, the, the the last poll that they did of it was was actually 
quite a while ago, but 48% of the people who went missing in the country um, went missing in Tasmania, even though it's a tiny little island off the... It's, it's half of the island is unmapped wilderness. Uh, if you, there's, there's one road going through it to get to the other coast, and there's a sign there saying, look, if you're going to go on this road, there are no houses, petrol stations, anything for miles. You're on your own. Um, and people go missing in there all the time because it's just oh, it's, no. it's one of the last places left on the world in the world that's just wild. And um, the the family farm is right on the edge of that wilderness, uh, and sort of half encased in that wilderness. Uh, there's there's um, this really wild forest in one corner of it, about 10, 10 acres or so of forest, and it's just incredible. Oh man! And you stay in that basically yeah that's where the farm is um and where i live is probably about 20 minutes drive east of there okay um i I live out in the farming area where all the the crops are grown now um but my my granddad's still got that farm he's 83 and he still runs that farm himself damn yeah that's that's, crazy he's he's a tough guy he's had two two heart surgeries and and uh died on the operating table and come back to life and been in a coma and all that you just you can't keep him down he's uh, he's he's gonna outlive me i reckon (laughs) did you talk to him about what happened when the lights went out like did he what what did he say he doesn't remember he He had no idea it happened while he was uh under for the surgery so damn yeah crazy there's some some people who have like near-death experiences and 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 actually physically die and then come back and apparently have spoken about some sort of weird acceptance and and experience that they were having as that went out as the lights went out and what some people are talking about and and there's no real proof for as far as i understand it to be but they're talking about some sort of DMT dump that that may produce that feeling of acceptance and and almost like a high yeah, that right. they get as they're about to die, and um, it's a very crazy thought, but it, it 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 is produced in not only in your brain but also in your lungs and your your intestines, and it's crazy. It's a crazy thought. I don't know about all that, but I've. Um... I had uh, a, a bit of a experience um, when I was would be going back twelve or so years now. Um, I actually have a, an illness called Crohn's disease, uh, and I've got quite an advanced case of it. And um, it got to a point where um, my bowel went necrotic inside me and connected up to my renal system, and I went full body septic and was um, oh I was I, I was gone like that that they the doctors were trying to find a surgeon who would actually take the risk of operating on me and and nobody would take it on um but then finally they found one and i went in for surgery for it and they said i was going to have like an 85 percent mortality rate chance of you know dying what and um yeah percent. yeah obviously i survived <laughs> Um, but they had to open me up pretty heavily and um, had to go through sort of weeks of uh, getting my muscles to stitch back together in that in my abdomen because they had to take so much out. They had to open me up quite a long way. They tried to do it with keyhole surgery, but the necrotic tissue was so cemented that they had to actually like completely open me up, separate my abdomen and things. 
Um, but I'll tell you what, I didn't have a near-death experience, but I, um, when you're lying in that uh, the bed waiting for the surgery that you know you're probably not going to live through, uh, that's an experience, let me tell you. They say your whole life flashes before your eyes, but it doesn't really. It's just regrets. You just get faced with every regret you've ever had. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I, I, changed, I turned my life around after that. I, I started working on fixing all of those regrets um which is why i you know I, I used to have quite a prominent corporate career and i had a house and mortgage and all the normal stuff got rid of everything moved to the place where i'm most happy which is tasmania where i grew up uh, and gave away my old job and career and picked up a hammer and started doing what i love for a living instead it, it's uh, it turns things around for you being that close Respect, brother. Respect. That's that's amazing. That's amazing. I, I heard, I mean, that must be such a thing to go through, but that, that sounds very similar to what, uh, I can't remember who said it, but he, I think he was an actor or something, and he said, imagine that you're on your deathbed and you're surrounded by all the ghosts of your potential. Mm. That was and Denzel all Washington. Of them, Denzel Washington, and, and, uh, and they're all angry and disappointed. And, uh, and that's pretty much what you're explaining there from, from my interpretation of it. Yeah. It's uh, regrets. Yeah, I swore to myself I'd never work for somebody else again. Uh, I'd never wear a suit again. Um, <laughs> don't care what the occasion is. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to focus on being happy. And the funny thing is the, the happier I got, the healthier I got. And uh, I've managed right. to keep my Crohn's disease in um almost full remission now for many years just by uh, being as stress-free as humanly possible. Well, stress creates a lot of problems. I oh, mean, yeah. uh, it, it, uh, it does a lot to the, to the uh, inflammatory system mm. in the brain and in the body. And um, it's, it's, it's a bad thing. And, and there's so much stress these days, the fast paced life that we all live, everybody's stressed. There's no relief from this constant, you, you have to think about all the shit all the time. It's always on your mind. And there's never just time to be. Except the 48-hour dagger challenge. Except. <laughs> <laughs> but even when you're in that, you're in the state of, it's a Zen state, but it's doing something. And it's a very, it's, for me, I still find it very challenging because I'm not as good as, say, yourself or, you know, I, I don't have all the experience. I'm, it's starting to come together. But for me, it's still very stressful. And because I'm a guy who likes to just be, I don't like high-stress environments. I, don't, I really don't like it at all. So, so when I know I've got a lot of shit to do, like I can do it, but it's, it's not pleasant for me. It's not, a, it's not a, a pleasant experience. Like I have to force myself to do it to achieve the final result and I will be proud and happy with myself after the fact. It's funny. But while I'm doing it, it's a grind. I, uh, I was actually just saying this to my wife before the podcast. Um, I, I learned something recently that, uh, or relearned something. Uh, the, the definition of ecstasy 
uh, everyone always thinks of ecstasy as being linked with pleasure. And I always thought that that's what it meant. I thought that's what ecstasy was. But um, the definition of ecstasy is actually just to be so engrossed in something that everything else disappears. It's literally like 100% uh -huh. of the CPU is focused on that one thing. That is what ecstasy is. I didn't realize this. My uh -huh. whole life I've thought it was just about pleasure. But um, it is, even if you're not necessarily enjoying it, the state of being in ecstasy is good for you. It's right. a, it's a form of bliss. Yes. I was, that makes a lot of sense. I was listening to uh, a, a podcast Joe Rogan was having with somebody the other day. I can't remember the gentleman's name, but uh, he was talking about how, how a testosterone affects uh, particularly young men, like it affects all men this way, but particularly young men, as you, reach puberty and start becoming a man, uh, your testosterone levels are working and going crazy. And that's why it, what, what testosterone drives you to do is things that are physically difficult and, and it makes it feel good while it's difficult. So like doing high intensity sports, like uh, boxing or soccer or rugby or something like that, where there's real risk and there's, and it's physically difficult. Um, it's there's something about it about the testosterone that drives us as males to do these difficult things mm. and it makes it makes the, the there's almost a sense of um purpose in the struggle there's a pleasure in it too and that that i found to be very interesting i was like because i and I, I could never under, understand why you know like when you when you're really into gym and things like that the the pain is immense but within the context of what you're doing you're accepting the pain. Yeah. You know? well, I mean, it's, it's, but if that pain was there just randomly without reason, you'd be like, Oh my gosh, I'm dying. Like what's happening to me? You know, it's not something you're willing to go through and accept within the confounds of your interest. Well, it makes sense on a biological level, really. I mean, ultimately every organism's uh, main purpose in existing is to um, breed and create more of yes. itself. So, um, yes. you're going to get um, rewards in your reward centers of your brain for doing things that make you more and more of a viable candidate um, to the opposite yes. sex. So you're going to exactly. do things that are daring, do things that make you stronger and survive more and live longer and be able to fend off predators and things like that. It's the, the lizard brain part of the human that uh, is going to make that sort of thing work. Yeah, I think that's got a lot to do with it. Because I mean, if you look at uh, animals that have to fight like goats, flipping rams, um, buffalo, they, they gun it, man. Unfortunately, people it. forget all the time that humans are also animals. They are animals. We keep they thinking that we're above animals. animals. We're not. We're just animals. <laughs> we're, we're, we're able to contemplate certain things that make us a little a little better but in a lot of ways we're just we're but at the just same time as, as einstein said if you judge a goldfish by its ability to climb yes. a tree it will spend its entire time, life thinking it's a failure thinking it's stupid um yeah, yeah. i mean there's no difference to uh, a lyre bird doing one of those stupid dances with the tail going uh, circling mm. around a female than a drunk guy i've seen that leaning on a bar and saying hey honey you come here often there's no difference it's the same thing it it's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's very much the same thing. Um, 
but it's that and i should imagine like in ancient times men would <laughs> men would get pretty vicious about like if you like the chick that i'd like we would fuck each other up and well see have you heard it, of yeah. helen of troy Helen of Troy, yeah, exactly, dude. That was the biggest fuck up of all time. Oh uh, yeah, it was all about one chick, just yeah. some random chick. He's like, "I'm gonna take this bitch home." <laughs> Do you know there was um, uh, Vikings landed in North America long before the British did, um, and they is that a fact? Because I I read something about that and I d- didn't Te- see. To- technically, it was Canada or what is now Canada that they landed, and they actually started okay. a settlement there. But then an incident happened with uh, one of the women that was there because in ancient Scandinavia, men and women went off to war and and fight and adventure together. There, there was no there's not different social class like in um, hmm. other cultures. But um, there was a, an incident over a house where one of the women there claimed um, a house as theirs. It was a house that was built by one of the natives of the uh, one of the Inuit people or something. And she claimed it as hers. And one of the other guys said, no, it's, it's mine. I want it. And they argued so much and couldn't settle it. So um, the leader at the time, I think it might have been Eric the Red, said, well, if you guys can't settle it, you can't stay here. And then they t- made him go home. So they'd set up this camp and everything. And because of the, uh, a man or woman couldn't resolve an argument, they actually left and uh, never settled there again. Goodness me. Yeah. that That's crazy. <laughs> that's so crazy. Yeah. That's that's wild, man. Very interesting. So, uh, so now tell me a little bit about uh, your your mushroom interests, because that's another fellow interest that we have in common. Yeah, I, I, I was sort of a backyard mycologist. Um, I, I don't have much interest in terms of like psychedelics or anything. More just the way that they grow. Um, I'm a firm believer that. Um, Fungi are the dominant species on the planet. I think they were, they were here before us and they'll be here long after us. I'm just fascinated well, by them. It's it's a very, very interesting topic. And when I talk to, to my brother about mushrooms, he just rolls his eyes. He's like, oh, my God, here we're talking about drugs again. I'm like, we're not talking about drugs. We're talking about uh, mycelial networks and and fungal matter and how it works and how interesting it is. Thirty percent of healthy soil is fungal. Well, you can it's tell microbial. a lot about the soil based on what mushrooms are growing in it. Mm. What species? Mm. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not amazing at that. I, I don't know half as much as I wish I did, but I know a little bit here and there. And and I'm always fascinated to learn more. Mm. Uh, it's a it's a very very interesting topic, and there's lots and lots of research going into. Uh, Paul Stamets is, is is doing a lot of work in that regard. Um, I think Michael Pollan to some extent. Um, all these guys, and they they're really going for it. And there's lots of positive research coming out about uses of certain mushrooms medicinally. Mm. Some of them psychoactive, some of them not psychoactive. Like My, the lion's yeah. mane mushroom is is one of them we were speaking about. Yeah, I, I don't get too much into the the medicinal side of them. I'm just more more uh, interested in how they grow, to be honest. Um, yeah, just the and, and sort of relationships to the the soil, like um, how Copronopsis clusters will only grow in soil that has dampness issues, and uh, Agrocives will grow in well drained soil and things like that. So you can 
basically walk around it's almost like dowsing you can tell what soil is good to grow your crops in based on the type of mushrooms wow. that are growing in it wow mm. what's that what's that one that's like the largest growing organism that they they suspect might be a meadow maker there's a um, fairy ring actually uh, in France somewhere that is uh, something like three kilometers across um, and they're Damn. not they're yeah not, I think that's not a... entirely sure how old it is because there's medieval writings about it um, and where it was actually described in the medieval writings is quite a bit smaller than what it is now but it was still something like uh, 1.3 miles across or kilometers across or something so it must have been very old because fairy rings uh, people don't realize start at a single point and grow outwards and they slowly get bigger so you can age them basically like the rings of a tree um and right. age how, how big they are the biggest one that i've got and the farm that i'm on at the moment which is about 960 acres this farm uh, the biggest one i've found is probably about 10 meters across so it would be it would be a good 50 or 60 years old wow that's crazy so do they calculate on the rate of growth at which they yeah grow like depends on the species of mushroom um it depends on uh soil and and things there's there's different types of uh of soil and the type of soil in the region that i'm in is is quite unique to this region um but Tasmania is so filled with many different types of mushrooms that uh, it's often described as basically turning into a giant mushroom every autumn. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, there are so many species here that about half of them they uh, suspect have not yet been discovered. Uh, and wow. most of them don't have names yet because they're just there's too many to, to, to count. We have ones that glow in the dark. We have ones that uh, are bright what? purple um, and are about a foot tall. We get it, it looks like a, a um, Alice in Wonderland set in some forests. It's it's crazy. Some of the some people actually their whole hobby is going around finding them every autumn and taking beautiful photos of them. There's some great groups on Facebook where people will share these photos and they. If if you were, didn't realize that it was a real thing, you would immediately assume it's fake whoa you got to send me those links oh I'll yeah I'll, I'll, I'll have to yeah um, but <laughs> one of the ones you mentioned crazy. one of the ones you mentioned lion's mane mushroom grows in the wild here um on the sides of yeah, trees and um they get the size of like a human head um growing on the side of a tree but if you get a cluster of them it can cover the entire side of the tree that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, my That's favorite crazy. one is called Amanita muscaria. It's the one that um, most, yeah, peop- most yeah. people know is the sort of fairy mushroom. They've got a white stem and yeah. red, red top with little white spots all over it. Um, and the ones here grow like the size of car steering wheels. They're huge. No way. And they're very heavy. No yeah, they're massive. Um, I've actually been trying a... to spawn some in my lawn. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's difficult, but it's 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 possible. It's a, it's an interesting one that uh, the Amanita muscaria. Uh, it's one. It's a very curious mushroom to me because I, I I keep thinking about like children's books and uh, depictions of Christmas and all these things. It's always there. Mm. It's mm. always there. It's shown up in literature for nigh on a thousand years. Yeah, and it's and it's like. 
you know, where, where, when did that start happening? You know, is it, is it synonymous with the, the colors of Christmas or is it, is, does it go way back further or what, what's the Boy, fundamental I, issue behind that? We, we could totally derail this conversation. I could tell you some things about Christmas that would make your beard curl. Dude, I am, <laughs> let, let me let me let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something real quick. I uh, I'd like to go down this conversation because, uh, as you know, I used to be a Jehovah's Witness, right? So did I did not know that. Christmas. That's, that's new for Didn't me. You? Yeah, yeah. So I used to be a Jehovah's Witness, and uh, I got kicked kicked out of the church for smoking. I pretty much wanted it to happen at that at that point. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, lucky you. <laughs> yeah man it's you know what I, i've got no i've got no hatred toward it i've got no hatred toward it. it it taught me a lot and i'm grateful for the the i I got to learn how to speak from a podium which was beneficial for you know speaking to large groups of people and things like that i got what i needed out of it and i'm good now like that's we're good jesus still loves me it's fine um <laughs> yeah, i'm sure anyway the point of the matter is that um we didn't grow up celebrating that. So I don't like, I don't hold it to any high esteems. I, I pretty much know that it's got pagan backgrounds to it. Um, and I, I think that's probably where you were leading to. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, if the, I'm not mistaken, the paganist. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's a, it's an ironic one. Yeah. Um, and I believe it's got something to do with it's got something to do with the Norse beliefs as mm-hmm. well as an Egyptian belief as well. Sort of. Um, basically, there's there's some correspondence there. It may be uh, it may be controversial to bring up if there are uh, people of the Christian persuasion uh, listening. What but... I'm trying to say is we're not knocking religion. We're just talking about facts here. This is a fact. It's yeah, not... historically yeah. Christian. Um, missionaries and that that have spread throughout the world spreading christianity have uh, met resistance by the locals of different cultures and their way of uh, making christianity acceptable to them was to basically adopt their beliefs into christianity so that they still got the same festivals on the same days throughout the year and all that sort of thing Um, and everything was familiar enough that it was easy to make the transition to christianity for them um, yes. And the biggest resistance that they came across, that Christians came across in their travels, were the Scandinavian people, Norse pagans. Um, mm. That saga of Christian indoctrinization of the Norse people was mm. long and bloody. <laughs> they held on to their pagan beliefs until the bitter end. And there are many families that still do. Um, in the end, Christianity won there. But um, one of the biggest things that they took was um, the celebration, the most big deal celebration that the Norse had was a celebration of Yule, um, which turned into Yule, which turned into Yuletide, which turned into Christmas. Um, But they adopted, uh, Santa was adopted from Odin, a magical bearded man that would fly through the sky um, on over the 12 days of Christmas, um, well, otherwise known as the 12 days of Yule. Um, but Santa, um, oh, Odin rode during a, a period called the Wild Hunt uh, that lasted the same amount of time. And he rode on a horse, magical horse called Sleipnir, which had eight legs. 
and wow. Santa has eight reindeer that pull his chariot through the uh, the sky. Um, children would leave their boots outside and fill them with hay for sleep near to eat, which is where the stockings filled with presents comes ah, from. Um, ah. That's also mixed with um, the inside every home in Scandinavian folklore, every home, every farm has a creature that lives in it. Um, depending on where in the Scandinavian countries you live, sometimes it's called a Nisa and sometimes it's called a Tomta, but it's the same thing. It's a, it's a little elf that lives in your house under the floorboards and is responsible for all the good luck or bad luck that befalls the household. And every year at Yule, you would put out a, a plate for them. When you have your, your Yule dinner, you would also serve up a plate at the table for the Nissa, and you would give them the best of everything. So if you were cooking something that was really looking good and the smell was just driving you crazy, you just had to have that first bite, that first bite's the bit that you give to the Nissa. It's a show of respect. Um, oh, and wow. that led to people leaving milk and cookies out for Santa. Um, you give gifts to each other, but a uh, tradition in Yule is to give only gifts that you have made yourself to people that have um, made your year meaningful. So if you had a good year, you hand make gifts for the people who made it good. Um, wow. Basically, it encouraged society to work together more and help people more and all that sort of thing. It was sort of had a function to it. Um, and there's all these things that are directly just taken and turned into Christmas. And of course, because of the vast spread of the Scandinavian people um, influencing Germanic tribes, um, that turned into St. Nicholas, the, the mythological character from um, Germanic tradition, um, who was also called Sinterklaas, um, I think in, uh, where was that? I think Frankish culture was uh, they called him Sinterklaas which is where Santa Claus ended up coming from because Frankish was a huge influence on what became English language um, but yeah it's 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 all there Bam. and uh, that's impressive <laughs> a lot a lot of people still celebrate Yule as particularly in Iceland um, but it's it's yeah all, all through it. each of the Scandinavian countries were the borders are a bit different now, but they were different kingdoms during the sort of the era of the Vikings, like 800 AD through to like right. 1066 sort of time. Um, and so there was the, what is now Sweden, what is now Norway, what is now Holland, all that sort of thing. They all had right. variations of it. And Iceland yeah. had its own thing again. But Iceland is very similar to Norway in a lot of those older style countries that cultures, they're very different now, but um Back yeah. then, they were kind of the same because the same people from Norway ended up colonizing there. So um, depending on which Vikings, because Viking was just a profession. It wasn't a, a yeah. culture. Yeah. Was, uh, so yes. Yes. Vikings came from all of the different kingdoms. And depending on where different Vikings from different kingdoms landed is where how those cultures were influenced. And that's why there's all the yes. different sort of variants. But the Christians were spreading through those countries at the same time and picking up those traditions. And I mean, nobody ever really questions why we have uh, bunnies and eggs at Easter. Mm. Um, but uh, Easter is actually the Norse celebration of Ostara. 
Nostara is the uh, celebration of spring coming. And what happens when spring is first peeking through? You start seeing rabbits everywhere and the chickens start laying eggs again. But the thing is, you've been letting your chickens free range for all this time because you don't need to know where they are over winter. And so you have to hunt for the eggs because anybody that's owned chickens knows that they'll fuck off and they'll make a nest wherever they feel like it. So you send the kids out because you're not going to spend your – you've got jobs to do. You just send the kids, go go find the eggs. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so now the Christians are like, well, that works. Rabbits, eggs, let's make it Easter. Um, yeah. And they – moved around the mythology of um, Jesus being reborn because in spring, everything else is reborn. Everything comes Mm. back to life after being, you know, dead and cold over winter. And so um, the the person that is Jesus, if he was ever real, was not born on December 25th. That's just when that's right in the middle of y'all. It, the, the archaeological record shows that his birthday, I think, was in July somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Because it would have been too cold for for Jesus to be in a barn, in a manger at that time, and shepherds wouldn't have been out uh, herding their, their flocks. But anybody that um, um, knows, uh, you know, history really shows the the how long a good story can stick around. And so yeah, they yeah. make it a good story. And in fact, actually, the, the Norse people are a really good example of this. They didn't have uh, a habit of writing anything down. They had a written language, but they didn't really use it the way other cultures did. They didn't write books. Mm. They didn't chisel out stone tablets or anything. What they did is they told stories and they're, they still survive. They're in a, a thing called the sagas. Um, and the, mm, the, yeah. the, the, the Nordic sagas are all uh, allegorical. A lot of people don't realize mm. that. They're, they teach you life lessons, uh, a bit like Aesop's fables, and they do it in story form because you remember a story. You don't necessarily remember mm. a heap of facts that you're supposed to remember, is it? but right. it's very easy to remember a story. So Christianity did the same thing. They... Um, taught the things that they needed to teach through a damn good story. And yeah. um, there's actually a um, around late 400s, I think it was, there was a, an event called the Council of Nicaea. Um, and it's where a bunch of uh, religious leaders got together and made um, the New Testament, basically, because up until that point, they only had the Old Testament. And the Old Testament's a little bit fire and brimstone and they needed something a little bit more modern. And so they mm. decided to deify Jesus, who at that point was uh, a man. Um, there's historical record that he existed, but he was a great leader. A lot of people respected him. He was a very knowledgeable person, but he was just a, a bloke. Um, mm. And so 400 years after his death, this council got together and said, well, people remember this guy. Let's build the story around him and say yeah. that he was divine. And they attributed all of these things to him. But they weren't just doing this randomly. They were trying to build a system of morals, a system of keeping people together yeah. and keeping people understanding how the flow of life is supposed to go and make people work together built around a really good story, which has yeah. endured for a long time. 
Well, those 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 ones that have faced the opposition, like Christianity has, and many other religions have as well, especially from Christianity as well. Uh, but the thing is, as you say, the story is what lasts. Yeah, and um, and I don't, you know, like I don't think that it's fundamentally bad or good. It's I think what you can extrapolate from it is to there's something about the, the sense of community, which is what a lot of people look for in religion is that sense of belonging, meaning uh, you have people on the same side of the fence. We all want to take sides on whatever fucking side we want to take. And I mm. think that's a large part of the problem, but the sense of community, brotherhood, camaraderie, all that good stuff. But also it's, it's people are battling with, I think this has got a lot to do with it because the whole co- concept of heaven and hell, people are battling with their own mortality. They, they, like this is a common problem for mankind throughout the centuries is that we always want to believe that there's something after death. Mm. Like we can't understand no thing because there, there is always a thing. In the words you know? of Shakespeare, that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. Indeed. Well, well remembered. It puzzles the will. <laughs> And makes us rather bear those ills we have than to fly to others we know not of. Oh goodness, we're getting serious. We're getting serious <laughs> here. This is this is turning into a very intellectual conversation. But that that that's brilliant. Um, well put. Uh, but I, but I think that's that's part of it. That's that's a huge part of it. Because like to come to acceptance that you're just not going to be here one day, and everybody you know, and everybody that you will ever know and the world the, the party is just continuing without you and it's like what happens when the lights go out my it's old, a big question my all-time favorite comedian is an irishman called dylan morin and um, he says that uh, beautifully puts it he says uh, all religion is as an organized panic about death <laughs> right right it makes sense that's well put well put, yeah. But it's funny, like we um, were talking about the, the Scandinavian uh, mythology before and it went through a, a big process of demonization like Christianity tends to do about things that it's trying to put down. Um, yeah. But it's actually um, that allegory extends very deeply in it. A lot of uh, it's it's easy to think of Valhalla as being the, you know, to get there, you have to die with a weapon in your hand you know that's the myth that's always put around there but if you actually read the sagas it's um that you basically um you die a good death by continuing to fight whatever the fight is yes it's about dying well um by living well by reaching the end having lived a good life um valhalla is just a um a symbol of that okay um, so it's it, yeah. it's very similar to many other um, religions, really. It's it's about living yes. well, yes, because you don't yes. know what's on the other side. Well, well, that's the thing. That's the thing. You like people can theorize that you go to heaven or you go to hell or you go to purgatory or or you go to flipping Valhalla or whatever it is. But it's it's. I think these concepts of heaven and hell are concepts to try and help ourselves come to the realization that we need to live our lives in a more pious manner, um, conscious of being good people. Hmm. 
And I think those, those, but it's not really a very good motivator. Well, I mean, it seems to be, uh, well, it, it seems to be, but, but it's, it, it it's, motivates fear more than anything else. And it's Pavlov's dogs, isn't it? It's trying to, um, if the good thing will happen, if you do the, the good thing, it's, um, it all comes down to one of the oldest, uh, religions that we know about and it's ancient egyptian and when you died mm. you would stand before anubis and he would weigh your soul against all of the deeds of... that you did and yeah. yeah if you if it weighed enough uh, if it wasn't weighed down by a lot of bad activities you were allowed yeah. into heaven but if it was nice and um you know light that's what you wanted you wanted your soul to be light and and breezy and happy and um, I think we all feel that, uh, well, most of us at least feel that inherent pull of what is objectively a good deed and what is objectively a bad deed, even though we couldn't mm. uh, begin to quantify what those are. But when we do something that's inherently bad, it feels like it weighs on us. Yes. With the yes, exception of exactly. psychopaths. But, you know, there's there's one in every family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think my brother was one of them. My oldest brother, he was a he was an asshole to me when I was younger, man. Yeah, he was just like. <laughs> but getting back to that Egyptian thing with the Anubis weighing your heart in the scale, wasn't it your heart in the scale with the feather of truth or something like that? Yeah, but the feather of truth and was the measure of of your deeds, basically. Your your right. heart would get heavy. Heart, soul, yes. same same thing. The heart was just representative yeah, yeah, yeah. of your soul. I don't think the ages right. the ancient Egyptians had a concept of a soul. Um, actually in their religious beliefs okay um they they are very interesting culture like um especially when you look at the the pyramids of giza and uh and the later pyramids they weren't able to replicate the the magnitude of the pyramids of giza after afterwards i was actually reading it was about built... there's um if you mm. were to measure the sides of the great pyramid of khufu no, the biggest of the mm. three pyramids. If you were to measure the sides, all four sides at the base, there is mm. only a difference of 38 millimeters at maximum. These mm. things are huge, like 300 meters long. Yeah, yeah. And they still got it that precise. It's crazy. Mental. It's crazy. It's crazy. My, my, my eldest brother had the privilege of going through motherfucker um and, and i'm sensing some he angst said, like, <laughs> do we need to talk about this let's i need to see a therapist man lie back let's um, talk about this <laughs> and he he came back and he said to me like you see it in pictures and you and you see it on tv and things like that but he says when you there, when you're standing at the foot of a man-made mountain mm. you just like what the fuck well, some things are honestly it's monumental. You, you can't deny that some things have presence. Oh, yeah. Of their oh, own. Yeah. It's just, it's like a, um, sometimes it's, uh, we, we have here in Tasmania one of the largest trees in the world. It's the oh, wow. second largest tree on the planet and the, 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 large, the number one largest fruiting tree on the planet. And you yeah. can tell it's there before you see it. Yeah. Because you just yeah. feel it's there. Yeah. And I imagine yeah. the pyramids yeah. would be something like that. Oh yeah. It's it's got a it's got a, a magnetism to it almost and like this awe inspiring like it's even when you walk into like look, 
Johannesburg is not that great and it's cities and stuff like that. It's okay. But like when you walk next to like these monumental structures, you're just like, yes, but whoa, this is wild. Eh? This is crazy. Mm. Like, how did they do this? You've got like, um, I don't know how, you know, I've, I know a little bit about building, but I'm not a builder, right? So like, I don't know exactly how to lay slabs and all that sort of shit. But when you see monumental structures, you're like, jeepers, creepers. I'm not sure how much accuracy there is to it, but I read that there was a uh, a temple in ancient Egypt, um, well, or in Egypt, I should say, um, that had a statue of a particular pharaoh in it that uh, every day the sunlight would enter the temple and illuminate the statue, but the only yes. day of yes. the year that it would completely illuminate all of the statue was on his birthday. And oh wow! Due to it collapsing slowly, like the, the the foundations were failing on it, they had to move this thing, and so they brought in experts from all over the world to try and recreate this phenomenon when they moved the temple to save it, and they they couldn't they couldn't make it happen. They tried and they tried, <laughs> and no matter what they did, they just couldn't reproduce it. Oh no. That, but that shows you, that shows you how intelligent they were. They were crazy, crazy smart. And um, I was, I was, I was watching something about the, the Great Pyramids and, and somewhere up in the, I think it's the King's Chamber, there's these three granite solid blocks over the top. Mm. And I think each one of them weighs something like three tons or so. But they are perfectly and precisely placed. Yeah, you couldn't even put a knife like blade between them. It, it's just, it's like, what are the, what were these guys doing? Same sort of thing what can be found in doing? Machu Picchu as well. Um, yeah, but, uh, but in uh, back in the the king's chamber, have you seen the um, saw marks on the 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 tomb that's there? What's what remains of the tomb? The rock was mm, cut uh, so. Uh, cleanly that you can actually see the almost like milling marks on it um and a lot of people think that that's proof of like aliens or modern technology or something but there's been um people that have recreated or attempted to recreate what could have been used as tooling using technology and limitations of the day and they have actually made stone swords they're very slow and they require constant lubrication but they 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 believe that stone saws were actually possible to, to be made out of uh, bronze, I believe. Bronze? Yeah, work hard in bronze. Wow. I heard something about um, they, they would use like either bronze or copper, but they would also grind up like a, a graphite of, uh, or not graphite, but like a, a powder of uh uh, corpse yeah and it adds um, acts as extra abrasive yes something yeah. like that yes yeah. um because it like catches in the in the soft metal or the softer metal and it and it keeps pushing through i don't know what i'm particularly interested in seeing is shortly uh, i think it was in late 2018 or early 2019 they did um some uh, like gluon um scans of the 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 biggest the Khufu pyramid and they found above the king's chamber a big old void there's this big hollow spot that nobody's gone into yet they didn't realize it was there 
Uh, it's massive. What? It's really, really big. It's like 50 by 30 meters at the base, but it's really tall, um, like 120 meters tall or something stupid tall. And they don't know what's in there. Um, they were about to actually sort of do more scans and work out how they could maybe get their way in there. But then COVID happened and it all had to be shut down. So now that that's um, starting oh, nice. to go on the decline, they're going to be picking that back up again. I'm very interested to see what's in there. Wow. that That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, there's this, I think there's so many undiscovered things. Like, I mean, Gebetli Tepe, I think they've only... Uh, like uncovered 10% of it, I think they said. Only 10% of it. Mm. And it's like, what else is lying down there? You know? like, yeah. My mind is just like so excited to just see this come to fruition because it's, it. I think it's dated to between 11 and 12,000 years ago, somewhere around there. But I mean, people, people, people that are researching this need to hurry up because... Um, progress waits for no one unfortunately um one of the yeah. the places that is excruciatingly high on my bucket list is to visit stonehenge one day um oh, but yeah. stonehenge when the ancient romans were occupying britain stonehenge was already old like really old this that thing wow. is it's like seven or eight thousand years old that they know of um and they think that it was actually built as an expansion to a ring that the inner ring that was already there. Um, but they've just a couple of years ago found out there's this huge big complex um, buried below it. Um, like a burial complex or something that they were trying to work out. Um, but the British government are building a highway running right through it and they're just demolishing parts of this complex and things and oh, no. and uh, all of the people that are trying to preserve Stonehenge are like do you know what the car pollution is going to be doing to these rocks and everything and the government's like ah but we want money so who cares um, this is just how the That's... world works unfortunately it's like it's been there for 7,000 years it'll be fine Jeepers. yeah it's awful it's absolutely awful people are obsessed with attitudes. making money yeah that's crazy. Um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, my brother was, was telling me when they went inside the pyramid, you weren't allowed to take like yeah. photos or anything like that, or, or like you're not allowed to touch it, you're not allowed to do fuck all to it. There is if a you great, can't, like it's light sensitive. And there's a great YouTube video actually. Somebody snuck a hidden camera in and did the entire trek around the inside of the pyramid with the hidden camera and then posted it on YouTube. Um, oh, so wow. if anybody's ever interested in seeing what it is like inside there, then it, it is, it is available to be seen in video form. Um, yeah. Yeah. But wow. the, the guards there do not like you taking photos at all. Jeepers. Yeah. 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 My brother said he couldn't take photos of anything there. He yeah. They, they hound had, you like, about it. Yeah. You can hear it on yeah. the video. They're, they're like following them around and making sure that they, if you got hidden camera, you got hidden camera. But Yo. nowadays you can have such pinhole cameras that they were able to oh, hide yeah. it. So. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. No, today's technology allows many things. Um, it's crazy. Some good, some bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, there was, there, have you heard of the Saqqara, this, this, I think it's called the Saqqara bird? No. It's a, it's, it's a, 
it's a model that they found it was a uh, wood wooden model that looked looked like a bird had a beak and everything and all this jazz and they were looking at it and they thought this was some egyptian toy that they they found in egypt obviously and it, they just thought it was like some sort of toy but as uh, people were studying it who were acquainted with aerodynamics and things like that they started looking into this bird and they were like this thing the way it's carved it's not just random it's it's very much aerodynamic and uh they were looking at this now this all sounds very woo woo so take it with a pinch of salt right but there's a whole lot of information where they built a replica of this thing and there's a piece on the original where it looks like a little side section of a plane the back end of a plane mm -hmm. it had this piece going up like this and then it had it had no piece going across but there was obviously something that attached there at some point you can very clearly see something was attached there at some point and they did the test without that little tail piece and it was showing very minimal effects and as soon as they put that piece back that piece that they had theorized would help and may have been there the aerodynamics on it was spot on do you ever wonder how many so, of these things are just like a coincidence and the person who built it all those years ago had no idea. <laughs> it could have been. It could have been. It's not. But, I mean, when we when you look, you got to look at the whole picture. you got to say, okay, it could have been a coincidence for sure. I'm not saying it was designed that way. But what we can say is the Egyptians were fucking smart. That's what we can say. Right? Oh, yeah. So is it a coincidence or is it that they understood something about aerodynamics i mean they were fascinated with flight you can see it in their images yeah i mean you know, humans uh, have been for as humans long as have humans. been forever yeah. exactly so um why would why would they not have studied such things like you know they were studying everything else and and your story about the temple not being able to replicate it today i mean that's proof of it yeah it's proof of it yeah i mean some sort of lost knowledge they, they they say that that we've lost more knowledge than we've ever gained, um, or, or that we have today. I mean, it's it's uh, even just the burning of the Library of Alexandria. I mean, what I was, was just gonna what say. was in there that uh, yeah yeah. I mean, at the same time, the the things that we do today would be considered magic just two hundred years ago. For sure. Um, For sure. it's in, it's incredible how quickly i was actually just talking about this with my wife um, yesterday just in the last like when i was a kid growing up we were um fascinated by the fact that you could have a computer in your home um that was new for us uh, having yeah. like an Amiga or a, or a Commodore 64 with a cassette tape that you had to put in there for the data <laughs> and, and big clunky yeah. keyboards and things just to be able to do everything through text on the screen and all that sort of thing. It was fascinating. And now mm. I'm walking around with a, a practical supercomputer in my pocket. That's and crazy. anytime I want to look up a GIF of a cat playing a keyboard, I can't. <laughs> you, you can learn anything you want. You've got access to the entire sum of human knowledge. Um, it's, yeah. You can reach more people than you probably should be able to. Um, it's incredible. And that's all been in the space of just my lifetime of 35 years. Yeah. I was, I was talking about this uh, to a friend of mine the other day, and I was just saying to him that 
I think being able to have a telephone and having all this knowledge accessible at all times has made us feel smarter than what we actually are. <laughs> There's a very big difference you know? between knowledge and wisdom. We have a lot of yes. knowledge and very little wisdom. That's that's exactly the point. Knowledge is that's knowing exactly that tomato point. is a fruit and wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. Wouldn't you also say that knowledge is the application of wisdom? No. 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 Hmm. Not at all. Hmm. There's, hmm. There is wisdom that has stayed the same for a long time or as knowledge changes. I mean, all magic is is just technology that hasn't been discovered yet. Actually, um, speaking of um, to jump back to what we were talking about with the uh, mushrooms, um, do you, with your bushcraft work, I'm, I'm interviewing you now, do you, <laughs> do you um, look at much herb law? Herb law? What is yeah. that? Yeah. Herb law, like um, plants. Oh, herb law, like uh, uh, I thought you said herb law. I was like, that sounds like a some type of mushroom I've never heard of. Um, <laughs> herb law, I haven't. Is if that's a book or something? It's. It's. I. I like to look at medicinal plants. Yeah, um, that's what that's what herb law uh, is. It's herb law. Is, is that the, is the that word what, for okay? Oh, yeah, not but acquainted with that word. Sorry. The the reason I bring it up is because. Um, you living in South Africa actually have one of what I think is one of the most fascinating uh, medicinal plants on the planet. Mm. Uh, and it's something that's been uh, this, the source of much research lately um, and uh, proving to be Durban very interesting. <laughs> it's, it's, it's called um, the, the Latin name for it is Leonotus leonurus, and it's actually native to South Africa. Um, you might know it as lion's tail. Lion's tail sounds familiar. It's a green uh, leafy shrub with bright orange explosions of flowers. Hmm. Very straggly sort of plant um, with sort of very, very odd looking flowers. They look unlike any other plant. Um, but it is apparently very, very common in South Africa. Um, cause it's, yeah. it's native to there and it's, uh, almost treated like a weed, uh, cause it grows. Yeah. So well, the, the, only, the only one I can think of, uh, there's many types of weeds here. There's also one called, um, oh man, the name escapes me right now, but it's, uh, also like you can trip on it, but it's, that's not the point. The point is this other plant that you're talking about could be Wilderdacher. That's the only, that's the common name for it. It also, it also has these these uh, bright sort of orangey flowers um, that that come out in almost like a almost looks like a pine cone, not really like a pine cone, but it has these specks of flowers coming off of it. If I remember it correctly, um, yeah, you might. I know that um, uh, locals tend to call it wild dagger. <laughs> <laughs> because it wild dacher yes wild yeah. dacher it's wilder dacher yeah it's the same yeah right that's the plant i'm talking about yeah. leonotus leorunus okay it's, um okay i didn't know the scientific name for it it has a chemical compound in it called leorunine 
which um, is hasn't been studied very much. But um, the yeah. studies that have started happening for it have actually shown that it has incredible anti-inflammatory, hypoglycemic, um, and various other things it, it uh, re- fixes muscle cramps jaundice tuberculosis all sorts of things uh, and they're, they're finding that it's it's one of the most potent medicinal plants that they've ever found that's so it's, crazy it's going to actually lead to a uh, a whole new round of pharmaceutical products once they study it further jack's got it in his garden it, it grows in his garden yeah um, i have it in my garden all the way over here in tasmania Oh wow, fantastic! Yeah. But the I know from my from my anti poaching days, I uh, I was a little I was quite a bit into the medicinal side of things, but I got taught a lot by uh, the the kitchen lady who made our meals when we did come back to camp, which was on the rare occasion. But she would make our meals for us, and um, yeah, she she was actually a witch doctor. She, I was very nervous of her at first because she had a very like sort of standoffish disposition to it. But as I started to get to know, we, she started opening up to me and she said, I'm actually a witch, witch doctor. Like as part of the I'm job description to... of a witch doctor. You've got to kind of put people on edge, yeah. don't you? That's just part of it. Mm. So, so that, that's, she, she played the part very well. Um, but yeah, I started to get to know her and she's, she was, she was, uh, probably in a late thirties, somewhere around there. And she had like this weird necklace around it creeped me the fuck out. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, was my first interaction with, a, a, an open witch doctor. I mean, I'm sure I've interacted with many that I wasn't known of. Um, but she was telling me that this plant Wildedacher is basically used for stomach ailments as well. Mm, it um, is. It's, it, uh, it's very good for treating diarrhea. Mm, mm. Um, she uh, she told me all about that. The um, it, it it leads into a, a topic of um, the stigmas surrounding um, medicinal plants because um, mm. what do you call it, Valdadaga? It's called Valdadaga, which basically means like Waldaga. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, people um, use it recreationally as sort of like when they can't afford cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, um, it's a it's a but substitute. Be, but because of that, it's led to it having a stigma, and that yes. has led to them not bothering to test its medicinal uh, properties yes. until very, very recently. Just like yes. what's happening with we're seeing with cannabis, um, they're starting to yeah. find that it can almost completely cure Parkinson's disease. It can give yeah. um, pain relief to. Um, people who are dying of, of horrible cancers and things that even opioids mm-hmm. don't affect. Um, yeah. And then now we're starting to see the benefits of psilocybin, how it can actually create neurogenesis and, and regrow brain pathways. Um, yes. But all of this has been put off because of um, stigmas, because yes. people hear of, they, they hear the word mushroom or they hear the word marijuana and they think, stoners they think people just getting high and they um, because of that stigma it has actually hampered socially politically um this development of these medicines that are now changing people's lives for the better um yes and it's it's i i faced it myself because uh cbd oil has been proven to give great relief to sufferers of crohn's disease um it's anti-inflammatory massively anti-inflammatory 
Yeah. yeah. And Crohn's disease is an autoimmune inflammatory disease. Um, yes. And bringing it up with my specialist, he openly laughed at me. Despite mm-hmm. the fact that mm-hmm. he had had a front row seat to the suffering that I endured for years. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And seeing the world just start, just start a little to tip over mm-hmm. into seeing it in a different light. Um, yeah. obvious, obviously, substance abuse is, has been a thing for a, a, as long as humans have drawn breath and will be a Indeed. problem until humans draw their last breath. Um, mm-hmm. it's, un- it's unfortunate, but um, as I like to remind people of, alcohol has no medicine, medicinal benefits and yet it's perfectly socially acceptable. If yeah. you were to tell people... And it's people, a dirty drug. If you, you told people that you went home after a hard day's work and lit up a blunt and just watched some TV, they'd be horrified. But if you said yes. that you went home and you cracked open a couple of beers, they'd say, that's fine. That's to- totally normal. Uh, and totally normal. it's very, very strange, I find, the social constructs around what has stigma and what doesn't when, um, especially in light of the evidence that's coming out. And one of the biggest i mean on in in all the media at the moment and on the, the word on everybody's lips is the pandemic that's going on uh with coronavirus but mm-hmm. what they don't talk about as much as they should is the other pandemic that's been going on for the last probably 10 15 years and that is depression it's getting worse mm-hmm. and worse as time goes on and yes. whatever you think the cause of that is is it's a whole different discussion for another time one thing that the Learunin in um, the lion's tail, the wild dagger, has, uh, it has an incredible effect on depression and is unparalleled uh, against anything else that they've tried. It's incredible. The, this is now Wildedacher. Uh, yeah, that's right. The flowers specifically, the petals of the flowers. The, what do they contain? And do a you, chemical, do, do a, chemical the... a chemical compound called Learunin, or Leonurine, sorry. Leonurine. Leonurine. Yeah. And they've only just started researching this because it had a stigma of being cheap weed. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. It's literally so unknown still, despite the fact that they've known about this compound for decades, it's still only just in the, the last five years, even been looked at at all anywhere on the planet because of that stigma. But this is something that can genuinely bring relief to horrific mental pain that people worldwide are suffering on a bigger and bigger scale as time goes on. And yet, because of stigma, there's still countries that are illegalizing just the plant of, um, of the wild dagger. That, that's crazy. I didn't yeah. know that much about it. That, that's super interesting. But this is, this is the thing, Alex. This is... This is why I like to talk about these things because my brother actually had a, I think he was more concerned than anything else because I like to talk about these chemical compounds. Some of them happen to be like psilocybin, Mm. extremely medicinal and psychoactive. Yes, which is why uh, microdosing fascinates me. It does fascinate me too. And uh, and look, here's, and I'm going to tell you something that's deeply personal to me. Not a lot of, uh, I don't, I don't want people to think that I'm trying to advocate drugs. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I was, I was reading an article about, there's, there's a book called um, 
uh, migraines and epilepsy and the corresponding um, uh, interactions that they affect similar parts of the brain um, and uh, a whole bunch of similarities. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know all the shit, but I was reading about this book and how people with uh, something called suicide headaches, they, they're like oh, they're I'm familiar the with them. most, are you yeah. personally? No, not personally, but I, I know of them. I, I, I suffer from um, aura migraines and um, it leads you to do a lot of reading about them. And I've, I've read about suicide migraines. Yeah, yeah. So I, I believe it's crazy intense. Like, um, but anyway, so I was reading about this and uh, this guy in Australia, he was doing psilocybin and microdosing daily just to be able to live. Yes. And it, it has helped him to the point where he hasn't had one in a couple of months where yeah. it was a daily occurrence for him. So this is the point. Now, to my personal story, I did psilocybin when I went, what was it, last year or the year before to the Durban Eastern Knife Show. I did it with David Hula. I did it on a podcast, which was a bad idea because I blanked out 45 minutes in. I just, <laughs> I just, I just got I got high as balls, bro, like really, really high. Uh, We were smoking a blunt in the beginning. No, not smoking a blunt, smoking a full-on J. It was a fat one. And uh, we were just getting in the vibe, you know. And uh, David David Hula grinds up like a whole bunch of this stuff. And he hands me some, and it's like this teeny bit of like ground-up mushroom. And I'm looking at this stuff and I'm like, is this going to do anything, dude? And he's like, oh, no, that's my microdosing. I gave you the wrong one. And then he switches it out with like a palm sized <laughs> amount. And I'm just like, uh, dude, this looks like a lot. He's like, what do you want from me, bro? That's fine. You'll you'll just feel the buzz. I'm like, okay. Right. So I chuck that bitch back, bro. Swallow uh, tasted like clean weed, bro. Oh, it was wild. It was a horrible tasting thing. But I was like, I'm going to get my experience now. And uh, so I started interviewing him and 45 minutes in, I just went, I literally leaned forward. I dropped and David said, and it's just hit. And I was <laughs> in another fucking world, bro. I thought David Hula was a god standing before me and talking. He was, he's a very intense guy. Like he talks very intense. He's very excitable. And in that moment, I was just like, oh, this is so bad. Oh, God, is so upset with me. Oh, my gosh. And then I just I started like seizing a little bit, but it wasn't an epileptic seizure. That's what I realized afterwards, because when I came back, I wasn't fucked. When I have grand mal seizures, I am fucked, like royally finished. My joints are finished. My brain feels like it's exploded. And then I came back within 10 seconds, which is also not what happens with grand mal seizures. But in that other two seconds, the most vivid, meaningful, spiritually relating things and experiences happened to me in, the, in those 10 seconds. It felt like I lived another life for two weeks, <clears throat> two weeks in an alternate universe. It was crazy. Anyway, so I came back from that experience very like self-aware almost. Uh, it, it, really, it reveals a lot of bullshit to yourself, you know. Well, people you, you, talk about that sort of revelation when they do um, like ayahuasca journeys and things like that. Yeah, DMT experiences. Um, yeah, I, I personally um, like when I. But was hold on, let me let me just let me just get to the end of the story real quick because this is where the benefit comes in. Is that um, 
I haven't, since then, I haven't had a epileptic seizure, a grand mal epileptic seizure. Not a grand, I've, I've had petty mals, but I can deal with those. But I haven't had a grand mal seizure in a full year. Yeah, wow. Right? And, I, and the, the normal case for me is to have between five and six a year. Yeah, right. That's a big jump. Right? So it's a big jump. And that's what I'm trying to say here is people, because of the stigma, are trying to trying to keep meeting the narrative. Either they're white knighting on somebody else's behalf or they, they genuinely believe it. But there's new research now. There's new evidence showing that it is beneficial for depression. It is beneficial for people with addiction. It is beneficial for things like neurogenesis and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and all these different things. Why stigmatize something that is so beneficial for people's health? Well, it can make life it's actually better. An interesting, um, it's an interesting thing to theorize about because um, did you know there's, there's no answer for it? If you actually look up why um, psychedelics are illegal in most countries, you wouldn't be able to find an answer. There isn't one. Yeah. You would think that somewhere yeah. somebody would have said something or written it down, but there's no actual justification for it. Um, yeah. In Australia, for example, they were <laughs> writing the law back, way back in the founding of the the, the, the country sort of thing. Um, yeah. And the guy who was the uh, the leader at the time had somebody writing his speech for him, as is the case with many politicians. Um, mm. But anyway, he's, he wanted to legalize uh, cocaine or coca products and uh, morphine or opium. And um, the speech writer said, oh, things are much more convincing if they do them in threes instead of two. So when you're making the speech, it'll sound a lot better if you list three things. And the guy's like, oh, chuck cannabis in there then. That was it. It's been illegal ever since. What? Yeah. Uh, and if you look far enough back in every country, that's, that's, that's why. But my theory is that they don't like, uh, the powers that be don't like people using things that make them um, broaden their minds think more indeed um but that's well, that's getting a little bit tinfoil hatty even for me um but i mean i was gonna say personally i in my you know teens and, and early 20s i did my share of various experimentation and that but i quickly actually learned that i i really don't like being intoxicated by mm. anything anything I, I actually don't mm. drink alcohol at all um, wow. Like okay. Not even like a, a small glass of wine with dinner. Nothing. I, I've, I have not had a drop of alcohol for ooh, 15 years. Um, That's great. Just because I just, I realized I just didn't enjoy the feeling of it. Um, yeah. And the same with, same with something like with weed or something like that. I, I did my share of it, let me tell you. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I just don't enjoy being high i only i only have any interest in medicinal things like um cbd oil is a good example of that you can't yes. get high off of it but you can yes. get the medical yes. medical benefits and i think we've all seen that video of the severe sufferer of parkinson's being given cbd yes. oil and then yes, acting yes. like a perfectly normal person with normal dexterity amazing. normal ability to speak um it's sort of um when when neil armstrong came back from the moon 
they asked him, what did you think when you were standing there looking back at the blue dot? And he said, I wish that I had every world leader up here standing next to me so they could all see that we're all just on this tiny little rock together. Yes. Um, yes. And I kind of feel like that. I kind of feel like I want to take every politician that is against the legalization of medicinal marijuana and show them that video of that person who's can you can you even imagine I can't even put myself mentally in an imaginative state where I would have to live that way. Yeah. I can't even yeah. pretend to imagine what that would be like. And I do suffer from a oftentimes debilitating chronic illness. And yes. I look at somebody with advanced Parkinson's and think, I don't know if I could live like that. Yeah. But he had like two drops on his tongue and for a good hour he was fine, like a normal person. And and that's that's the point. Is like what's what's wrong with that? And we, we hear um, the the tech gods in Silicon Valley are all it's very hip at the moment to microdose um, LSD yeah. or psilocybin because yes. the reports that people have, you are having a dosage that is so small, you do not feel any of the hallucinogenic effects. It's not about getting high. There's nothing about yeah. getting buzzed. But yeah. as you microdose psilocybin, all of a sudden you just start feeling like you want to eat healthier. Uh, Un- yes. unhealthy, fatty, oily foods just don't appeal to you anymore and you just start craving fresh fruit and vegetables. You start wanting to exercise more. You just think, mm. I-, I could just go for a run. You just feel lighter. Mm. You feel happier. And all mm. of this stuff just starts happening. It's almost like we're reverting back to the way, like the default state, the clean slate, the way we're supposed to be. Well, um, it takes the weight off. Yeah, and that's that's, um, very that's how sim- I felt afterwards. Well, that's very similar to the effect that um, the leonurine has. You just feel good. You feel like the problems are still there in your life, but you just don't really care. You just want to focus on the positive things, focus on the good stuff that's going on. Yeah, it's um has remarkable effects on depression and being such a... Uh, sweeping pandemic of its own, especially in the last decade, um, leading to all sorts of horrible things. At the very best, reduced quality of life. At the very worst, suicide. Um, anything that can help that mm. should be studied, proliferated, and uh, made available to everybody. Um, yes. And it's not because of those stigmas. Yes, yes. Um, that's that's the problem. It's the stick the 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 stigmatized stig, stigmatized uh, thoughts behind all of these things that are getting in the way of research and and benefit of people who who can benefit from these things. Yeah, um, absolutely. I th- I think there was a study done. I don't think I know there was a study done by the FDA. They said psilocybin is. Uh, a drug in a, in a league of its own with the least amount of side effects, little, little to no side effects. Uh, and with the most amount of benefits for the least amount of money. Yeah. I mean, that was their uh, words. It's uh, just, uh, you just have to look at where it comes from to, to know that because, um, mushrooms are not a plant and they're not an animal. Yes. They are their own thing. 
uh, fungi as its own own subspecies of thing. Um, a lot of people see it as just plant matter, but it's it's really not. They actually share more in common with uh, animals than they do with plants, but they're also very much not animals. And so anything that they would produce, such as psilocybin, uh, should not be treated like a drug that comes from a, a plant. Yeah. Like uh, ibuprofen is just um, basically white ash bark resin. It's it's where mm. they get ibuprofen from. Penicillin is a um, a yeah. fungus. It, I mean, it was grown on the, the it was grown on the skins of rock melons. Yes, or, or yes, that was the stronger. That, I think that the strongest strain, because Alexander Fleming discovered it, but his strain was too weak. Uh, and then this other chick discovered a, it, it was growing on what, what melons, something? Uh, um, rock melon is what they're called in Australia, but the rest of the world, yes. I think, calls them cantaloupes. Yeah, and, and that was one of the big reasons why, because uh, the, the Germans and the uh, Japanese didn't have that, to my knowledge. And the, uh, the English and the Americans did. They had this this strong strain of penicillin, which was two hundred times two hundred times stronger than the uh, one that Alexander Fleming discovered. And really, that's all you need to know. If imagine what the world would be like without penicillin. Yeah, penicillin is a fungus. Mm. So, what I mean, every era of human civilization likes to think that they are the most civilized the most advanced that will ever be and mm. um, they look back in with scorn at the past and in a hundred yes. years time what are we going to look back on now in scorn yeah yeah exactly that's the point is that uh you know when we look at the old medicine of you know, operations that they were doing back in old times, man, they were like drilling holes in people's brains to release demons and, and, and all sorts of weird shit that they were doing back then. And we look back and we're like, that's crazy. But that's where they were at at that time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, we have a whole lot more knowledge to our disposal nowadays, but we need to look into it and we need to invest in the plants that are out there that can benefit people and stop looking at them with this demonized, uh, judgmental attitude uh, for people who do choose to use them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, many, it's a choice. You can decide to use it or not. How many people uh, die every year because of alcohol? many people injure yeah. themselves or ha cause harm to others because of alcohol and then compare that to how many people die or injure themselves or cause harm to others because of weed or psilocybin exactly exactly there it's a it's a far worse drug in terms of its addiction in terms of violence behind it and things of that nature it's just it's and it and it's something you can kill yourself with and people do it every day you can go into a bottle store, buy a whole bottle of it, and and kill yourself with it. You can. Yeah. It's uh, it's a strange thing that we allow such dangerous drugs to to be in society, but then other drugs that do have benefits are like, nah, 
we're not going to have those. I mean, you can cause severe harm to yourself with paracetamol. Sure, exactly. But brother, look, uh, I think I think we've we've had a good run, but the uh, the internet is getting in the way or something. Yeah, yeah. But basically, what I wanted to just say is thank you very much for for being part of it, and uh, also give you an opportunity to. Uh, any shout outs or anything like that, but also to say where can people find you on social media? Yeah, I go by Valhalla Ironworks on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, uh, and I co host the Forgecast podcast um, with Sam Towns, my boy, Big Fudge. <laughs> uh, and you can find that, just look for the Forgecast uh, on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, but we're also on Facebook and Instagram. I really do dig your work. Every time I see a new piece come out, I'm like, holy shit, look at that thing. That's crazy. You ain't seen nothing yet. I've got some big projects coming. I bet you do. I bet you do. <laughs> um, so, brother, yeah, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Alex Norton, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. And uh, be sure to check Alex Norton out on the Forgecast as well as on Instagram at Valhalla Ironworks and YouTube and all the other social media platforms. Thank you once again, Mr. Alex Norton. Appreciate it, brother. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Open Hearthcast. Find us on Instagram at Open Hearthcast, and we'll see you again real soon.